0: Our reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, and that can be found on page 1053 in the Church Bibles. So Luke chapter 19, starting from verse 1. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost."
1: John, thank you very much for reading for us. Let's pray as we start. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to hear you speak to us this morning. And as we hear you speak to us, please do work in our hearts to help us love you more. Amen. Well, around five times every day, the Amazon guy knocks on my door. I never knew that before I started working from home, but now I work from home quite a lot and I've seen it with my own eyes. And whenever the car pulls up and the dogs start barking, the knock on the door, my heart starts to sink. Because I know what it means. It means that someone in my family has been shopping online again, which means that more money will come out of my bank account before the day is done. It's going to cost me. That's the reason that whenever there's a knock on my door, I generally assume it is bad news. Or well, when Jesus knocks on the door, spiritually speaking, I think most people assume that is bad news too, mainly because they rightly assume that deciding to follow Jesus is going to cost them something. I think that's what we've seen over the last few Sunday mornings together as we've been looking at Luke's gospel. We've been learning who gets into God's kingdom and how they get in. And I think a fair summary would be that entry to God's kingdom is both costly and wonderful. Costly and wonderful. Costly to Jesus, first and foremost. I mean, we've entered the story as Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem where he'll go through a sham trial and eventually be executed, and the Son of God dying at the hands of those that he created, well, there is no greater cost than that. So costly to Jesus, first and foremost, but also costly to those who want to follow him, because his followers need to be willing to give up everything, including chasing after worldly wealth in order to be welcomed into his kingdom. Jesus won't accept second place in his kingdom, in our lives, it's first place or nothing. Entry to the kingdom of God is costly. But it is also wonderful. Wonderful as Jesus opens spiritually blind eyes like ours to see our need for his death and resurrection to get into his kingdom. Wonderful as we've seen that any cost to us in this life will be repaid multiple times over now and in the life to come wonderful as it's been made clear that it's those with a humble attitude towards Jesus that get into his kingdom not those who look sorted entry to the kingdom of god is both costly and wonderful and in today's reading as jesus stands on the outskirts of jerusalem he gives us a big reminder that the wonderful is so much greater than the cost he tells us two things that if we're Christians here this morning should make us really thankful. Two things which, if we're just here looking into the Christian faith this morning, should help us see that if Jesus is knocking on our door, on the door of our heart, spiritually speaking, that's not bad news. It's actually really good news and news that we should seek to explore more. And the first thing he tells us is that his mission is to seek the lost. His mission is to seek the lost. Take a look down with me at verse 1, will you? Verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And then verse 10, for the son of man came to seek the lost. Well, where Jesus went, a crowd generally followed, and Jericho is no exception. And because it was more Glastonbury crowd size than Glyndebourne, it presented a problem for one man Zacchaeus, who was short. Nothing wrong with that, of course. Some of the best footballers in the world are short. Think of Messi, Verratti, Kante. Their low centre of gravity means the opposition six foot five defenders don't stand a chance. But when it comes to crowds, if you're short, you've got an issue. Because just like when you're at a concert or a football match and you get a taller person standing in front of you, well, Zac can't see a thing which means he's got no chance of seeing Jesus go past. So he does the logical thing. He runs ahead of Jesus, climbs a large sycamore tree, plonks himself down with a fantastic view and waits for Jesus to come past. So Zach is sitting in a tree and there are bundles of 20 spilling out of his pockets because he is loaded. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And if you were a chief tax collector in first century Israel, you were generally wealthy because you'd been on the take. It was pretty standard practice to collect taxes on behalf of the Roman occupiers and charge a decent measure on top for your trouble. So while you, while you and I might think that the HMRC are stealing for us every time we look at our pay packets, in first century Israel they knew the tax man was stealing from them, it's just the way that it worked. So Zac was getting rich stealing from his countrymen, which meant that if he was taking part in Israel's Got Talent... Simon is not going to be pressing the golden buzzer any time soon. He would have been bottom of any popularity concert, uh, contest for, any, uh, for all good reason. Zac was short, Zac was loaded, Zac was unpopular, and Zac wanted to see who Jesus was. He'd undoubtedly heard about the amazing things that Jesus had done since he burst onto the Israel social scene about three years before this and wanted to take a look for himself. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've heard something about Jesus, Sunday school, from a parent or friend, something like that. You wouldn't mind finding out a bit more about him. Getting a clear view rather than just some rumour or hearsay. Well, if that's you, you are in the right place. Zach was short, loaded, unpopular, wanted to see Jesus and was lost. Because the crowd were right when they called him a sinner. He's not just a guy who's wanted to finance and made a few quid. His lifestyle in first century Israel shouted sinner. It shouted immoral. It shouted disregard for God's people. Zac was the kind of guy that decent people would cross the road to avoid. Zac was lost. And Jesus, surrounded by crowds of people, walks under the tree Zacchaeus is sat in. He stops, looks up, and says, Zacchaeus, you horrible little rotter stop stealing, start being nicer, and then maybe we've got something to talk about. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Zach, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Zach bolts down the tree and welcomes him gladly. And the crowd are outraged. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. The crowd are outraged because Jesus was the celebrity of the moment. It's like you getting your hands on those Taylor Swift tickets this week that everybody wanted, and you fast-forward a year, and you're at the front row of Wembley, strutting your stuff, and suddenly your eyes lock with hers. And she leans over, reaches out her hand, pushes straight past you to grab hold of the guy behind you, the one who's been trying to pick your pocket all night, spilling his drink all over you, using the choice language, clearly on something less than legal, and you say, What? She wants to shake hands with that guy. Jesus wants to stay at Zach's? It's outrageous. The crowd are outraged. And that's because they'd closed their eyes when they'd looked in the mirror that morning. So they'd forgotten what they are really like. And they'd started to look at Zach for an idea about what a sinner is. And said, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, so I must be all right. Not only had they closed their eyes when they looked in the mirror that morning... They'd also put their fingers in their ears when it came to any of Jesus' teaching they might have picked up on. So things like none of us have treated God or the other people he created as we should, that we've all lived in God's world, basically ignoring him. We lived in God's world alongside the people he made, basically thinking we're better than them. You know, we all do it. If you think you don't, uh, please just ask your spouse or family or work colleagues or friends, and they'll quickly clear that misunderstanding up for you. And if no one's brave enough to comment, just grab a Bible, turn to uh, the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses about how his people should relate to him and other people, and just see if you get past number one without realising maybe you thought you had this nailed and and you haven't. The crowd are outraged because they've got their eyes and ears closed to what is staring and shouting at them in the face. So we need to make sure we don't fall into the same trap. We need to make sure that we remember that without Jesus, we are lost too. I mean, it's a really hard thing to admit, isn't it? We drive around in circles ignoring all forms of help for hours rather than admitting we're lost. I mean, why is that? It costs us time and money and family harmony, and yet we do it time after time. Why is that? Pride, isn't it? We don't want to acknowledge that we are lost because we think it reflects badly on us. But it doesn't mean it isn't true. So, however many people we've helped across the road this week, however much dosh we've put in the collection plate or into the just giving links, we need to remember that if Jesus hasn't found us yet, we are lost. And we also need to remember that Jesus came to find us. So Zach and the crowd wanted to find Jesus, didn't they? I think that's clear enough from the story. But there's no indication that they wanted Jesus to find them. Which makes sense, because if we're honest, in our natural state, we've got no interest in finding Jesus. I mean, don't get me wrong, we might have a superficial interest in learning a bit more about him, or believing that he thinks well of us, or praying if we really need something. But the Bible's crystal clear. We all naturally turn away from God because we all naturally want to live in his world with ourselves in charge. Left to our own devices, we don't want Jesus to find us. So thank God that Jesus took the initiative and came to find us anyway. For the Son of Man came to seek the lost. That's why he came. That's literally his mission statement. Which should have been good news for the crowd, because they're lost. It should have been good news for Zach, because he's lost. And it should be good news for us too. Whether we're Christians here this morning, who people who used to be lost and now have been found. Whether we're not yet Christians, people who are lost, but who Jesus has made it his mission to find. Jesus coming to seek the lost is good news. Well, back to Zach. The question we're left with isn't whether he's lost. The question we're left with isn't whether Jesus finds him. The question we're left with is what happens when Jesus does find him? And the answer is Jesus came to save the lost. Jesus came to save the lost. Take a look down at verse 6. Verse 6. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham." For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to save the lost. The Son of Man, that's the Old Testament title for God's universe ruling king, a title which Jesus repeatedly claims as his own. He's come to save the lost. When Jesus seeks us out, he does so in order to save us, save us from the inevitable outcome of being lost, separated from God, one day to face his judgment as his enemies. And the good news for Zach is that Jesus' salvation plan has worked, because today salvation has come to this house, Jesus says. Today, Zach is saved. And what comes next is a whistle-stop tour from Zach of what salvation looks like. So number one, he receives Jesus immediately, so he came down at once. He didn't faff around, didn't put it off until he's older, richer, happier, nicer, or anything else. He realised there was no time to lose. He might be under a first century bus before the day is out, so he committed to follow Jesus. Number two, he received Jesus joyfully. He welcomed him gladly, which makes sense. If we recognise we're lost and Jesus has come to find and save us, we'll welcome him gladly. If we receive Jesus sadly, we probably haven't understood that we're lost and he's offering to save us. Thirdly, he calls him Lord. Look, Lord, he says. Jesus, he he recognises it in the universal org chart. Jesus is at the top. Zach is way down at the bottom. Number four, his attitude to life is obviously changed. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. So half of his cars, his cash, His cabins, his crypto, he gives it to good causes. Here and now, not there and later. I don't think Zach is saying that somehow he's wronged the poor. But instead, this is a supernatural outpouring of thanks that Jesus has saved him. In other words, if Jesus has saved lost and helpless Zach, well, maybe Zach can do something for the lost and helpless in his own community. Then out of his remaining assets, he pledges to right the wrongs of the past as best he can. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. I don't think he had to do that. So under Old Testament law, if you'd wronged somebody, you had to pay them back with a penalty charge on top, varying depending on what, what it is he'd done. And I think Leviticus chapter 6 says that this case would demand the repayment of what you have done wrong, plus a 20% penalty charge, to reflect the severity of the offence. So, in effect, Zach is saying, I know what the law says I need to do, but I want to go above and beyond that. Because Jesus went above and beyond for me. The law didn't say he had to find me, but he did it anyway. So, why shouldn't I go above and beyond for him? And this is all pretty costly stuff for Zach, isn't it? A public apology financial restitution, probably the end of his career. Jesus didn't say he had to do all of this, not like with the rich young ruler in chapter 18 that we saw a couple of weeks ago, who Jesus knew loved his money more than he loved Jesus. And because Jesus didn't say he had to do all this, we shouldn't read this as saying that the day we become a Christian, it's mandatory to give half our possessions to the poor and pay 15 times any penalties due for any wrong we've done to others. But we should read this as saying that it would be very weird if our approach to the money and possessions Jesus has entrusted us with doesn't reflect the boundless generosity of his in seeking us out to save us. So four stops on the whistle-stop tour from Zach of what salvation looks like, and Jesus doesn't focus on any of them. Instead, he says, today salvation has come to this house... Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Well, a son of Abraham is someone who has faith in the promises of God. So when God made promises to Abraham in the book of Genesis at the start of the Bible about how he was going to bless him, and through that blessing, bless the whole world, Abraham believed God. In other words, he put faith in the promises of God, and it was counted as righteousness to him. So the key point is Abraham wasn't counted as right before God because of what he said or what he did or who he was or something like that. He was counted as right before God because when God made him promises, he believed God in his mind and his heart and he acted accordingly. That's what a son of Abraham is, someone who has faith in the promises of God, which is exactly what Zach did. He recognised that Jesus is the person God sent into this world to bring salvation to the lost, and he received him as Lord joyfully, and his attitude to life was turned upside down. Jesus is clear, Zach isn't saved because he gave half of his cash, cars, cabins, and crypto to the poor and made restitution for all the stuff he's nicked. No, he's saved because he's a son of Abraham. Saved because he's put his faith and the promises of God. That was true for Zach. And Jesus says, if you and I have that same faith, then we're sons of Abraham too. So I hope you think that Jesus coming to save the lost is great news. I mean, just imagine if he came instead to seek and judge the lost. If his strapline when he found us was, you're never coming into my heaven. Or imagine if he came to seek and wag his finger at the lost you horrible little rotters, start doing better, stop doing wrong, and maybe we've got something to talk about. Imagine if he came to be a good teacher for the lost, like a wisdom dispenser or lifestyle advisor or, heaven forbid, a management consultant. I mean, the strange thing is, if you asked your colleagues at work or your friends at school or the people you bump into when you're out and about, if you ask them why they think Jesus came, I think those are the reasons they would come up with. He came to judge me, came to point out my flaws, came to give me me some good pointers on how to live better. I mean, no wonder 95% of people in this country aren't following Jesus, if that's what they think he came to do. I mean, thank God that Jesus came to save the lost. Imagine if our colleagues and friends and family believed that. Imagine how many of them would change from thinking, Jesus knocking on our door is like the knock you never want to receive, to wanting to fling the door open, to welcoming him with open arms. Jesus coming to seek and save the lost is great news. So if we're Christians here this morning, let's thank Jesus that he has saved us. His salvation is more powerful than the world's best mountain rescue or lifeguard can do, because his rescue is the ultimate rescue. He paid the ultimate cost of his own life to save us from the ultimate peril of the righteous judgment of God. Let's thank Jesus that he has saved us. And let's thank Jesus that he wants to save our friends and family too. Salvation isn't something he offers grudgingly. Salvation is literally his mission statement. I mean, there will be a time of judgment when Jesus will stop seeking and saving the lost. But that time isn't now. Today he's in the business of seeking and saving lost people. And the way he does it is as we, his people, share his words and works with those around us, which his spirit then uses to prompt the hearts of some to heed his call and welcome his rule, just like he did with Zach. So maybe we should be a bit more relaxed when we share the good news of of Jesus with people around us. Because while there'll always be a grumbling crowd... There'll also always be plenty of Zachs who welcome Jesus' rule, respond rightly to him. And if you're here this morning just wanting a clear look at Jesus for yourself, not willing to settle for rumour or hearsay, haven't yet put your trust in him, well, the question for you is, will you respond to Jesus like Zach is, or will you just be one of the crowds? I mean, the crowd had a range of views of Jesus, didn't they, from someone who'd bring them trouble? Uh, to a good teacher, to a miracle worker, and all kinds of things in between. But what none of them did was welcome Jesus as Lord. Well, that's what Jesus asks of you. As God's universe ruling king, he says to you, will you welcome him into your life as your king? It's a big ask of his, isn't it? And it's a costly one. Having Jesus as Lord is costly in all kinds of ways, but when you stand back and you reflect on the wonderful salvation that Jesus offers as he finds lost sinners and welcomes them into his eternal kingdom, there really is no comparison. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to seek and to save the lost. Thank you that if we're Christians here this morning, we are walking, talking evidence that your plan is working. Thank you for seeking and saving us. And for those here this morning who don't yet know you, I pray that you might firmly knock on the door of their hearts And that they may believe that Jesus is really good news. And so decide to put their trust in him and be saved. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Tim. In a moment, um, when the band comes up, we're going to sing um, our final song,